Hi, everyone, and welcome to the American Ambulance EMS podcast. I'm Dr. Danielle Campaign, your American Ambulance's medical director. I'm here with our awesome co-hosts, Dr. Sajan Bakta and Dr. Patil Armenian. Hi, everyone. Hello. I also have a great special guest with us, Mr. Derek Ratzel. Hi, everyone. And we're here today to talk about ischemic chest pain. Who serves a million people in the valley? We do. The brave men and women of the double A are the best at what they do in EMS today. The finest place in the world to be is right here as a part of Americans' family. Help is on the way, got a unit and route. No matter the problem, when in doubt, we send them out. Sure as the sunrise, sure as I bust this rhyme, 10 minutes or less. Every call, every time, this is my career path, this is what I do. The double A's, red, white, and blue. Get your call on. Here comes American. Get your lights on. Here comes American. Get your gurney on. Here comes American. Get your gloves on. Here comes American. Get your save on. So Derek, um, thank you for coming on our podcast today. Uh, Please uh, tell us about yourself. Um, I've been a paramedic at American Ambulance for 19 years as of this past November. Um, I've been in EMS for approximately... 29 years at this point. I'm currently uh, on the BHS team. And, What's BHS for everyone listening? Uh, behavioral health support team, I'm sorry. And um, I'm a county preceptor, although my duties there have been somewhat reduced because of the case management that I do uh, in conjunction with the behavioral health support team. Great. Well, thank you for all that work in, in the behavioral health arena. Of course. Today we're talking about ischemic chest pain. Can you tell us about your case? Yes. So this was an interesting case. And when um, I was asked to come in and talk about this, this one immediately came to mind. It was uh, a regular Metro Day behavioral health shift, but it came out as a priority one for chest pain. Uh, We arrived on scene. Um, There was a somewhere in her 50s female that was complaining of chest pain. Um, It had been intermittent over the last couple of days. And she, one of the first things that she said to me was, I've had a lot of stress in my life recently, and um, I have pretty high anxiety levels, and uh, I haven't had um, any of my anxiety meds. So sort of in the back of my head at that point in time, I'm, I haven't gone away from it being a chest pain call, but I started to think more along the lines of maybe this could be um, more anxiety-based. Having said that, she um, had uh, some significant risk factors, um, diabetes being one of them, um, a little bit overweight. Not everything that she said led me to believe that this was a anxiety call. So we followed the protocol. Uh, we put her on oxygen, um, put her on the monitor, vital signs, blood pressure, um, started off with the oxygen, of course, and then moved on to aspirin. And as I'm asking these questions, um, my partner's getting the 12 lead ready. And the first 12 lead came back negative for STEMI. It didn't show anything but a normal sinus rhythm. And that's what I saw on the monitor as well. We kept her on the monitor and I kept her on the 12 lead. I mean, once it's hooked up, I'll just leave it till we get to the hospital. Moved her out to the ambulance. And as my partner is tying things down in the ambulance and we're preparing to, to leave scene, I happened to look up at the monitor And I saw a change, a pretty significant change. It looked like some ST elevation. I I wouldn't say it was quite along the lines of it being the the tombstone um, ST elevation, but it was a change. 
And I looked at my patient and I asked her, I said, do you feel any differently right now? And she goes, yes, my chest pain is much more significant at this point. So out of an abundance of caution, I, I hit the 12 lead and it came back as STEMI, which I thought was interesting. That's never happened to me before. Um, so I did a call in to CRMC and I told them the situation along with the initial and the secondary 12 lead. And I told them the situation. And when we arrived on scene, the um, cath lab team was already there. And from what I understand, and I didn't do too much follow-up on this, there was a really good outcome on this. And so I think that it, it's, it's important that we continuously monitor our vital signs. And I think one of those things is to actually look at the 12 lead or look at your monitor to see if there are changes. This does not happen often. It is the only time that that has ever happened to me. I was lucky enough to see the change happening and recognized it as something that wasn't just artifact. You know, it's interesting you bring that up. We actually have a protocol in our hospital that if you come in at point zero and have a chest pain, we get EKG, and then we do one automatically 15 minutes later. So we do that for the same purpose as you, that you know things can change, that heart can be dynamic in front of us, and maybe right. the first one's fine and the second one is horrible. Mm-hmm. And so it's great that you picked that up and got her to the right place. Well, and she, she had no she had hypertension as a history, but there was no other cardiac history that was mentioned to me at least. It's interesting that you mentioned her anxiety history almost derailed you, right? It did. It almost did. And um, so just be really cautious of trying not to blow it off because, um, which you did, which is awesome that you stuck to the protocol. And I think a lot of us have all at some point in our careers have been like, oh, is this really chest pain or are you just anxious? And um, anxiety people have MIs too, is basically the moral of the story. Any questions from the crew? No, I just want to reiterate that I think you did a great job of, you know, figuring out what was the most life-threatening thing for her, even though there were other factors in the history and the presentation that may have tried to lead you astray. Um, But you found the most critical thing for her, which is her chest pain, and to consistently reevaluate her. And I think you did a great job. More so than giving myself a pat on the back, I think the point that I was trying to bring forward to the folks listening to the podcast is don't assume it's one thing you should continuously be monitoring your patient because things change. And I think we all walk into calls with inherent biases that are probably based upon past experiences. And we should be really, really careful to not let those affect our patient care and and in a negative way. For sure. That's great advice for all of us. Thanks. Well, thank you for being here. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. So chest pain is one of the most common complaints we see in the emergency department and the pre-hospital setting. Like everything else we see, it's our job to kind of differentiate the simple and benign processes like being sore after a workout from the most life-threatening things like having a massive heart attack or an aortic dissection. And I think our job as first responders and emergency department physicians is to treat every case as if it's the worst case, uh, because time matters in these situations. And we have national standards and hospital standards in terms of door to balloon times for critical heart attacks. Seconds matter in some things as dangerous as aortic dissections. So it's really important to start off with these cases with the highest suspicion you can. Again, we see this complaint very often. There are over 8 million ED visits a year just for chest pain, and that's second most common behind abdominal pain. And here at American Ambulance, in 2019, we used the coronary ischemic chest pain protocol 
over 4,000, 4,288 times. And so far in 2020, we're here in November now, we've used it 3,199 times. There was a study in Journal of Emergency Medicine in 2005 trying to study the prevalence of acute MI in all chest pain visits. And so this is a study out of SF General Hospital. Out of 8,000 visits, 40% were hospitalized and about 10% had acute MI. I think that's a really high number. 22% had either unstable angina or stable coronary artery disease. Just as an aside, 11% had a pulmonary cause, uh, usually pneumonia or something similar that was serious enough to require hospitalization. And about 30% of those patients who presented for chest pain, MI was ruled out and no other serious etiology was diagnosed. So if you think about it, really only 30% were able to have a non-serious diagnosis. So we're catching a lot of serious chest pain diagnoses in these patients. It's really important to take all of these complaints seriously. Dr. Meany, you want to tell us about the pathophys? So the bottom line of cardiac ischemia is that your heart tissue, your heart muscle is not getting enough oxygen. That can happen because of blood vessels constricting, blood vessels being blocked, but basically there's a lack of oxygen supply. And heart muscle, cardiac muscle, is really special um, compared to other types of muscle in your body because it really needs oxygen to function. So for example, if you think of the skeletal muscle in your calf, you know, you could sprint really fast and after a few moments, um, your skeletal muscle, it runs out of its oxygen supply, but then it can switch to anaerobic metabolism and make lactic acid. um, And so it can use that for metabolism. Um, which contributes to muscle soreness, as we know. But the heart doesn't really do this. It doesn't uh, consistently make lactic acid. It doesn't want to use lactic acid. It really just wants oxygen. So when an artery becomes blocked, either by a clot, a plaque, or a spasm, the region of muscle it supplies uh, begins to undergo ischemia or damage uh, because it is very sensitive to that lack of oxygen. And then once it loses oxygen supply for a while, it can become infarcted, which means that tissue actually dies. Now, there's also certain things that cause the the heart damage too. So exercise can be one of those because it's causing the heart to outwork its blood supply. Um, and so if you already have blockages, and then now you're making the heart work more, you're going to run out of the amount of oxygen that it needs. Um, And then emotions, strong emotions, Uh, most likely they cause increases in blood pressure and heart rate, and then that can exacerbate an underlying blockage. So just because somebody has chest pain because of a severe emotional event doesn't mean that it can't actually be a real heart attack. And there's a lot of fact and fiction surrounding MIs and what causes MIs. Let's kind of go through this and to see if uh, this is fact or fiction. We'll kind of play a little game here. So MIs always feel like the worst chest pain of your life. Fact or fiction? That's actually fiction. You know, the size of infarction does not correlate with the severity of pain. It's interesting that we don't have a lot of redundancy in our heart. And so you can have a small part of your heart dying and cause a horrible amount of pain. Or a huge part, half of your heart muscle could be dying and you have very little pain. So um, less pain can actually be a bad sign. And infarction can lead to death of those pain receptors as well. So we're kind of going to go around the room and each of us are going to take a fact or fiction. The next one is radiation down the left arm is the most sensitive symptom. And this is actually fiction as well. The symptoms associated with the highest risk of having a heart attack is 
radiation to an upper extremity, but actually the right shoulder has a higher likelihood of being a heart attack than the left shoulder. And then two is diaphoresis or sweating. And then three is nausea and vomiting. So those three things together are the most sensitive factors in terms of symptoms for having heart attack with your chest pain. So our next uh, factor of fiction is we gave them nitrates and it didn't get better. So it's not cardiac, right? Well, this is fiction. So if you um, have relief with nitrates, it's not necessarily associated with ischemic chest pain. So if you give them nitrates and it doesn't make a difference, it also doesn't mean that it's not necessarily cardiac. So whatever your nitrate response is, has, means nothing about if it's cardiac chest pain or not. And that kind of makes sense, right? Nitrate is supposed to vasodilate the vessels, but if you have a big enough clot, no matter how big you dilate that vessel, you're not going to get any blood flow past it. And our goal would be that you have a small clot, you vasodilate it, a little blood flow gets past, their pain gets better, they get oxygen to those distal muscles. But if that clot's big enough, it doesn't help. Okay, let's do another one. Um, they're having atypical chest pain. It's just sharp. It's not squeezy. That means they're not having an MI, right? Actually, that's fiction. So traditionally, ischemic chest pain has been studied in really older white males. This pattern is not applicable to everyone else. So if you're a female, if you're a diabetic, if you're young, if you're using um, cocaine or methamphetamines, you can have an atypical presentation. So there was a large prospective study in 2014 that compared women having acute coronary syndrome to men. And they found that of the 13 common symptoms we typically think of, only three of those applied to the women in these group. Most notably, shoulder pain and arm pain were pretty significant in this group of women compared to men. So that means other than that, the typical things like chest pain and vomiting and the other things we associate were not present in women. Right, so they don't have the classic elephant on their chest. They're not always sweaty. Sometimes they're just a general complaint of weakness or I don't feel good or I don't feel right, um, which kind of reminds me of Derek's case, right? The person felt a little anxious, hadn't taken her meds. They just felt unwell. They didn't really say, like, this is the worst chest pain of my whole life. We know that looking at past data, women actually receive fibrinolytic therapy or PCI, which just means they get a stent or actual treatment for an MI, much less than men do, mostly because we think about it less or they're having symptoms that we're not used to looking for. These women also don't get their stents in a timely fashion. So there was an article in Circulation in 2008 that women with STEMI um, actually only got their stent in the recommended time frame 30% of the time compared to 35% of the time for men. Again, it's more about finding these patients, thinking about them seriously, noting atypical symptoms, noting what populations are most at risk, and keeping a high index of suspicion. And there's a lot of great studies out there that show that the door to balloon time, so the time from when a patient hits our door in the emergency department to where a balloon is opening up in their artery by the cardiologist has to be less than 90 minutes. So to, to expedite that, that's you in the field in the pre-hospital setting telling us about their chest pain, you know, getting that EKG done in red and getting them in. And that's hard for these women who present or even the diabetics or the people who have atypical symptoms, the young people, getting all these things done in a timely manner really put us off that mark. And then sadly, they're, re they're receiving less good care or, or slowed down care because of this. So everything we can do to really hone in on these atypical symptoms is really helpful. And especially if they have diabetes and they're women, um, we know that diabetics alone can have silent or subtle MIs. And of course, we just talked about women having atypical symptoms. So in the large Framingham Heart Study, they found that diabetic men had 40% 
um, of them already had an infarction that they didn't know about compared to 18% of non-diabetic men. Um, so that's, you know, double the rate of silent MIs in these patients. So what about young people? Um, if young people have chest pain, that can't be an MI, right? It can be an MI. Um, in one study um, from 15 medical centers, um, they looked over seven years at the risk of cardiovascular disease um, in almost 3,000 young people between the ages of 15 and 34. About three quarters were male. And all of these were victims of accidents, homicides, or suicides who had been autopsied shortly after death. And what they saw, especially in the male subjects, was that fatty streaks of atherosclerosis were identified in coronary arteries as early as age 15. So in about 2% of the 15-year-old males and about 8% of the 35-year-olds had evidence of coronary artery disease. That's just like interesting because you would never think that anybody that young would even have any signs of atherosclerosis in their coronary arteries. I think it shows that obesity is higher in our youthful population. You know, we have a more sedentary lifestyle with video gaming. Um, and so I think our population is is getting more atherosclerosis younger. Yeah. And just like you mentioned, that that is a big impact. Um, and subjects that had the higher amounts of atherosclerosis had higher LDL cholesterol. They had the lowest HDL cholesterol. So that's higher bad cholesterol, lower good cholesterol, higher blood pressures, and higher blood sugars. And even in adolescents and young adults, smoking and obesity definitely increase the risk of atherosclerosis. So we really can't write off somebody just because they're young. Coronary artery disease can be a long-standing chronic disease that gets worse over time. Um, but you can also have an MI from one of these small plaques that maybe are only blocking 5 to 10% of the vessel actually ruptures. And when it ruptures, it causes all the platelets to form and clot together, and that causes an acute blockage. And that is an MI, just like any other MI. And that can happen very quickly from a very small plaque or blockage once it ruptures. So these young patients can have a ruptured plaque that causes a complete blockage, and that's absolutely possible. All right, so let's talk about EKGs. You know, EKGs are paramount to diagnosing uh, ST elevation MI. You can always be having a non-ST elevation MI, but you wouldn't know that in the field. And more and more systems are using um, pre-hospital EKG transmission technology, which is great because they get their EKG, they get their STEMI, they send that to the hospital so the team can be activated, the cath lab team can be waiting for them. And so this really helps us meet our goal, those door to balloon time of 90 minutes to get that intervention done quickly on these um, heart attack patients. Because of the significant improvement in outcomes of door to balloon times, getting these patients to the cath lab as soon as we possibly can once we know they have a STEMI, we are trying to figure out the best and the fastest ways to diagnose these patients with STEMI. So nationally, there's a trend towards moving to transmitting our EKGs pre-hospital to the nearest STEMI receiving facility. And it's not in our protocol just yet, but American Ambulance is encouraging all of our medics, especially in those patients who have chest pain and the computers interpreting a STEMI, to please transmit those EKGs to the hospital, to the base hospital, so that we can mobilize these resources as soon as possible. All right, so let's go through the protocol. This is the SEMSA coronary ischemic chest discomfort protocol. And you're going to do your ABCs. You're going to put them on oxygen. You're going to put them on a monitor. They're going to get aspirin. 
Um, the two tablets of 81 milligrams PO, they're going to get nitroglycerin, sublingual, um, if their blood pressure is over 100. And then they're going to IV access. Um, then they're going to get their 12-lead EKG. And, um, and that EKG in our system helps determine destination. I know other systems are different, but uh, not all hospitals in our area are STEMI or cath lab receiving facilities. And so if your STEMI shows star, 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 QDMI or any of the star, 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 STEMI, those would all go to a, um, a facility that has interventional heart catheterization capabilities. Um, and then next on the list is they get some nitro paste. They start transport. You get some nitro paste. If you suspect um, cocaine or any kind of sympathomimetic abuse, you get Versed and uh, midazolam, and then you also get some fentanyl for some chest pain. Let's pick on our toxicologist to tell us about, so these drugs we're giving, we're giving aspirin, we're giving nitro, we're even giving fentanyl. How do those actually work on the heart to actually help the heart in these uh, suspected MI or suspected chest pain patients? Well, aspirin is pretty great because it actually um, stops the blood clot in your blood vessels from getting any bigger. So it's a it inhibits platelet aggregation, which is just stopping that blood clot from getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And there are some really good numbers associated with aspirin. Uh, for example, if you give this dose in the setting of an acute MI, uh, the number needed to um, prevent uh, more severe outcomes um, is 20. So that means in plain English that if you give aspirin to 20 people, one person is going to be saved from a really horrible outcome. So that's pretty good. Um, that's Those are actually really low numbers. I mean, we could all think about just the last 20 people we gave aspirin to for chest pain. Um, nitroglycerin um, works a little bit differently. And what that is, is it's a potent vasodilator. So it's going to be relaxing all of your blood vessels and making your blood vessels bigger, uh, with the thought being that if you can relax them and make them bigger, then more blood can flow through. And so more oxygen can be delivered to the tissues that need it the most. Um, it does lower your blood pressure. And so that's why in the protocol, we just say that if your systolic BP is great, is less than 100, we won't give nitroglycerin. And then the way that um, medication such as fentanyl works is really just by decreasing the pain. Um, you're just decreasing somebody's blood pressure and heart rate and helping them to relax and breathe better. Just by decreasing that, you know, that blood pressure and heart rate of the pain, you're causing more oxygen to be delivered to tissues um, because of that more relaxed state. Sajin, do you want to talk a little bit about Derek's case, how, you know, he got an EKG and there was nothing on it, and then he got an EKG a few minutes later, and then it was a STEMI? You want to chat about that a little bit? Yeah, so the ischemic process or, you know, these blockages of the heart or when the heart is not getting a lot of oxygen, they're dynamic, meaning things change all the time. And we know this in the emergency department, we actually repeat EKGs all the time for these patients because we know from minute to minute their symptoms can be changing, the blood flow can be changing, and we don't want to miss anything serious. And Derek was fortunate enough and smart enough to reevaluate the patient and notice those changes and and was able to catch that 12-lead EKG. Things that can change, the coronary arteries can spasm, which can lower the blood flow to certain areas of the heart. As we mentioned, the plaques can actually rupture, um, which can cause a really, really speedy accumulation of that blockage and block things much more rapid fashion than they were before. And sometimes the ischemia doesn't always cause an ST elevation. And we only see things like T-wave inversions or 
Q waves start to develop. And those are things that maybe aren't um, indicative of a STEMI, an ST segment elevation, but can be indicative of acute ischemia that we really take seriously. Um, So because it's a dynamic process, because things are changing minute to minute, and because every minute matters, we are constantly reevaluating our patients. And I think that's a good thing to remember. Yeah, another thing to talk about is our triage system. You know, some outside countries kind of criticize our U.S. national kind of triage system that we over triage chest pain patients, right? These are priority one calls. You send everybody out for a chest pain. And I think that idea is that the overall mortality rate of chest pain sometimes is lower in other countries than our own. So a lot of the studies come out of like Denmark and other places where, you know, their actual rate of heart disease is not as much as ours. But here in the United States, you know, we prioritize chest pain because the potential for a life threat is huge, right? It can be an acute MI, it can be a pulmonary embolism, it can be an aortic dissection. All those things you're going to treat the same on the coronary ischemic chest pain discomfort protocol because you're not going to know the difference in the field. You can treat this chest pain as real and you're going to go down that list. And because we have higher rates of coronary disease, we know you can die from MIs. And if you don't die, you have like kind of what we would call the cardiac cripple, right? So your heart muscle is going to be injured and damaged. And then you can't do all the things you want to do, like running a mile or chasing after your kids. So we know the morbidity associated with an MI is very high. So that's why we take these very seriously. Let's jump to our take-home points. What do we want those listening to remember from this podcast? Dr. Armenian. Um, I think one of the big take-home points is that women and diabetics can have atypical MIs with very atypical symptoms or no symptoms at all. And so um, we must um, take them seriously. Dr. Bakta. Just to reiterate Derek's case, it's really important to take all of these cases really seriously, you know, triage them and evaluate them as if they're having an MI because that's the thing that's going to kill them and do everything you can and get them to the hospital as soon as you can. Yeah. And my take home point is aspirin is super, super important. You guys are all amazing at giving aspirin and chest pain patients, but even though it's something you buy over the counter, just remember how important it is in preventing MIs and treating MIs. Thanks everyone. Thank you. Thank you. If you guys like the American Ambulance EMS podcast and you feel like this has been useful for you, please give us a five-star review on the iTunes store so that we can move up in the ratings so that uh, other uh, pre-hospital professionals can listen to us as well. Um, And we're also taking any solicitations for ideas or, or topics that you want covered, and you can email us anytime at podcast at americanambulance.com. Once again, that's podcast at americanambulance.com. Thanks. Thank you for joining us on the American Ambulance EMS podcast produced by American Ambulance in Fresno, California. The views of the guests and the hosts of this show are their own and don't necessarily reflect the views of American Ambulance or UCSF Fresno. The theme song for the show is written and performed by Roshan Roach. The beats were created by Young Pear and Brett Schoenwald. And I'm John Mark Bergen, American Ambulance's media producer, saying thanks for joining us. Have a great shift and stay safe out there.